some of you may have been paying attention, particularly in social media, and some conservative news outlets have covered it in the mainstream. Uh, there's a revival happening at Asbury. You can follow the hashtag Asbury Revival or Asbury Revival 23 or Asbury Revival 2023. There are a lot of hashtags flying around out there, but Asbury has a history of a revival. It's a university founded in 1890, I believe, and Asbury has <clears throat> about 1,500 students. Uh, the, first, the first revival they recorded was in 1905. This church was about 62 years old at that time. The next revival was in 1970. This one lasted much longer. Hours, 144 broken, unbroken. 144 unbroken hours, there we go, of prayer and praise. Uh, the result of that was somewhere in the realm of 2,000 teams who went out to witness to uh, churches and 130 college or university campuses to share the good news of what happened on the campus of Asbury. And then in 2006, there was another four days of prayer and praise. And we have a photo of what started not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. And this photo was uh, soon after their chapel ended, not this past Wednesday, but again, 10 days ago, when at the end of the service, there was a call to repentance and a call to just come down to the front and pray exactly like you would hear every Sunday here. And uh, some students did, and the majority of the students left. They were walking down the steps. I read one tweet, said, I was walking down the steps, and then I heard the choir singing again, and I thought, what? I got time before class. So they went back in and realized something is going on here that I need to stay for. This is a photo of uh, Thursday and Friday, not this past, but previous to that. And this is after, like, regionally, people found out about the revival happening in Asbury. So that would be about 72 to 96 hours after the revival began. It continued with many people that you and I probably personally know traveling there and joining that same revival that started over 10 days ago. Still a revival that is as simple as you can imagine, testimony of the work of God in people's hearts and lives. Reading of Scripture, prayer, silence and listening, and prayer, uh, praise and worship. Uh, so after uh, many people from many states, uh, I mean every state is represented at this point, we have another picture, and this picture is actually Cedarville University in Ohio, where this revival, I can't seem to really get straight because it's not gone on long enough to have a whole bunch of news outlets reporting behind it, so I can't tell you with certainty that this is still happening, but that was the fourth day of revival at Cedarville in Ohio. And then I want to show you the about um, eighth, eighth and ninth. This is the eighth and ninth days, somewhere in there, whether it was last, yeah, just this past Thursday when it was raining and not warm, or Friday and freezing with some snow. Uh, Witnesses report that uh, this mile reached all this mile, this line reached almost one half mile long. And that's in Wilmore, Kentucky, where the population doubles when the kids come back to school. And the kids are uh, representative of Asbury Theological Seminary and Asbury University, combined maybe 3,000 students total. The campus is now pretty muddy because it has rained there. 
but because people continue to show up, it's imperative that you hear these words. If you're planning to go to Asbury, please go to their website, click on Revival before you show up. They don't have a McDonald's. They don't have room for you to park your car. But the revival is already spreading. Because when I showed you that picture of Cedarville, what I didn't show you was pictures of Lee University. I didn't show you pictures of Samford University. I didn't show you pictures. Uh, I did show you Cedarville. And then there's, uh, it's not going to come to me right now, because I don't know that it lasted any more than four days. Uh, another university that it slipped my mind. Anyway, what I want you to hear is that there's a revival that's going to go past and beyond hashtag Asbury Revival 2023, because it's already begun at other universities. Timothy Keller is a preacher who's been famous for uh, his incredibly simple and straightforward, yet profoundly deep sermons, uh, reformed in his theology. Uh, He wrote, and continues to write in the Atlantic, he reflects on an author called Robert Bella, who wrote Habits of the Heart, and he Robert Bell is a sociologist, and his writing, Robert's, this is Timothy reflecting on Robert, Robert's writing is sort of a summary of what he's seen happen to our culture as a nation in the last 50 years, and he, in a few words as I can give you, tries to say uh, that, that whenever the balance of the church is removed from the fabric of our lives as a nation, then what we get really is a a godless version where we're founded on these principles of the pursuit of, uh, there's three of them, and you might have heard them before, but life and liberty and the pursuit of, so we've got some patriots here, and that's beautiful, and those things aren't wrong or bad or inherently evil, but you can see that when the balance starts to tip because the the, the church has just fallen off the scales here. This one just slams down because now we've got like an unimpeded pursuit of happiness. And there's really no moral sort of a paradigm that remains for happiness. There's no definition in happiness because it's lost its morality because the church has dropped out of the fabric of the culture. So you have a really big mess. And what it results in is people sound sets just... Tell me if this sounds like you've heard or seen anything like it. People who are putting their wants and needs and happiness above everything else, everything, even including their families, maybe their work. They just couldn't show up because they were busy being happy. Maybe it was above things that used to seem like they had a moral limit somewhere, and now we're blowing past that limit and redefining depravity. Timothy Keller reflected on that book because he says, we need revival in our nation. Our elders pray for revival. Many of you have probably prayed for revival. Some of you have probably experienced revival. So I thought it might be important for us to talk about what a revival is. So our question that we're answering is, what is a revival? And I think we've got five marks of a revival that we're going to pull from Scripture And you may see other marks that you think are in all revivals, and maybe you should join some historians and write some books about revivals, and maybe I'll read one of them. But I just want to pull our definition today, uh, some of our characteristics from 2 Kings and beginning in the 22nd chapter. If you don't have a handout, feel free to go get one of those, and I'm going to drink from my own water up here. 
And thank you for suffering all of the fun that I have going on. We're going to start in verse 10. Um, I didn't have to do this first service, but I'm doing it this service, man. It's just going to have to happen. Can I have like a volunteer reader, please? You don't have to read the whole time. And you don't have to stand up here. Anybody want to sit in their seat and read a verse for me? Maisie's on this. Thank you. So you're going to read the verse. I'm going to blow my nose. It's going to be beautiful. All right. Just flip that switch up. <laughs> then Shapin, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shapin read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. That microphone right there, and if you're done reading, just pass it on to the next person who didn't know they were reading. But thank you, guys. When I told Andrea, I said, I was, she was walking down the hall, I said, I was going to ask you to read scriptures this morning if I needed it. And she said, that's cool, I'm going to a training while I'm also working in the kids' area. Because <laughs> there's just so much sickness today. There just is. So our first blank, our first spot you want to fill in is revivals are characterized by repentance. Revivals are characterized by repentance. The next verse we're going to read is also in 2 Kings, it's chapter 23, if you want to get ahead there for my readers. <clears throat> in verse 13, what happens is Josiah recognizes that, <clears throat> I need like two stands, but I'm not doing it. <clears throat> Josiah recognizes that they have not, as a nation, uh, Judah, as a people who were of God, who are supposed to be for God, they have not been following God. And you can look down in your Bibles there, and this is still chapter 22, verse 19. You can see that the Lord stays his anger and has mercy on Judah until the life of Josiah is over. But the bottom line is revival is characterized by repentance. It's characterized by repentance. That means that people are turning away from their sins, like Grace is running away from reading the next verse right now. And they're, they're turning away from their sins, but they continue to turn away. Like she's continuing to run away from reading, and that's okay. And they continuously turn away from their sins. We'll see as we go through uh, 2 Kings chapter 22 that Josiah, the reforms that he brings, cannot happen in like a single point in history. And, and, then, and then she comes back, and isn't she beautiful? I love you, Grace. And your hair looks great today. So revival is characterized by repentance, and repentance is a long-term work. Second Kings chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, is someone prepared to read that? All right, Maisie's got it, and then Grace, are you next? Do you want to read too? That's great, thank you. Go ahead, Maisie, thank you. Okay, then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered, gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So revivals are blank. Thank you, Maisie. Our revivals are characterized by the hearing or the reading of God's word. But if you want to have a bunch of R's, you can say reading of God's word. 
What blows my mind about this is that this is a nation that is supposedly the people of God, and they don't even know that they don't have a copy of the Word of God. They're oblivious to the fact that it's missing. They didn't even know it was missing. It was a discovery like, oh yeah, I remember this thing? Because it was for generations missing. It would be like if your great, probably two greats, grandparents lost the chocolate chip cookie recipe that actually has no calories. But if you never knew about it, they lost it, it was gone, then your great-grandparents were like, man, I remember those chocolate chip cookies. They were the best. Zero calories. Unbelievable. Then the grandparents might remember stories, but your parents, they don't know a person who's had them. So for these people, it's normal to not have it. But their revival is characterized by the reading of God's Word. Now that's because they only had one copy. That's why they read it in the public square as they did. There was only one copy. We, uh, we, don't, we don't live in a place like that. The New Testament was a place like that. You'll see many times in the New Testament where Paul encourages the church to read this letter in your assembly. They did not have fax machines or phones. I'm sorry, copy machines. Well, they didn't have fax machines either, but I don't want to make a copy with a fax machine. All right, let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 23, and I'm in verse 3. Is our next reader ready? Grace, go ahead. Verse 3 of chapter 23. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant of the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands stat. statutes and decrees <laughs> with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Thank you, Grace. Hey, at least you didn't get something like Shaphan in there, right? That was really challenging. You did a good job. Revivals are characterized by renewing the covenant. So when a couple wants to renew their marriage vows, they're probably, maybe not every time, but generally speaking, they're going to invite all their friends. They may not send invitations like the first time that they were married, but they're probably going to invite all of their friends and all of their family, and they're going to ask a pastor to maybe come to their backyard or maybe to an event space, and maybe they're going to have a great big party that follows that renewal of their vows because they want the whole world to hear and to see and to experience them together saying, I am recommitting myself to this marriage covenant, and I am so glad to be doing it that I want everyone to see what I'm doing. Now, some of you are thinking about somebody who did that privately in their backyard, and they didn't invite anybody, and I don't want to hear about it. Because we want to think about the ones where they invite everybody to see that, because that's what we saw Judah do. And that's what many times we'll see happen in a revival, is the renewal of people's hearts and lives as they're saying, I am recommitting my life to the covenant I've made with the Lord. Now, how many of us realize, and some of you mature believers, I'm sure do, but when we have a person come up here, right before we open those little abhorrent plastic cups, and if you would like to begin filling communion trays again, you can see me after service if you really need the glass, but we're opening these little cups of juice, and we eat that piece of styrofoam, at that moment is, is so, don't see it through the cup and don't see it through the styrofoam. See it as the public 
and bodily renewal of the new covenant that we do every time we gather, as Jesus instructed, we drink his blood and we eat his body and we say, this is the reminder that as a family, as a church, we're members of a new covenant. Jesus says a new and better covenant. We publicly do that every Sunday. So every Sunday we do that, remember, we're members of a new covenant of grace, where we have a high priest who is able to not only sympathize, but go into a heavenly place that no other priest ever had access, and to perform for us works that allow us to be redeemed. Revival is characterized, what was our last one? I want to review it. Yes, by renewing our covenant. And then our next one, I'm in 2 Kings 23. Four through five. Are you wanting to read again? No, are you? Re- Go for it. All right, you got a bunch of fun words in there. When it says Baal, it's Baal. <clears throat> it's okay, you'll get to it. The king ordered Hil- Hil- Hilkai, the high priest, the priests next in, the, in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made by Baal and Ash- Ashura and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kingdom Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of towns of Judah and those around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. Thank you, Noah. Not easy words sometimes. Proper names from over thousands of years ago are not easy. So revivals are characterized by replacing the ungodly with the godly. You may remember a testimony shared up here by uh, Melissa Todd uh, two weeks back, maybe three, where she reminded us that at the end of a cycle of repentance for her, that we replace some ungodly things with godly things. Well, look at, what, look at what Josiah has done. He's destroyed all of these idols, and I love that he says that he has burned them, and he's taken the, even the ashes are no longer here. They're in the valley. He has pulverized them to dust and disposed of the dust. Does that remind anyone of somebody in the New Testament teaching about if something causes you to sin, maybe your right hand, you should what? Cut it off. Or if your eye causes sin, you should pull it out. So the idea for Josiah and for Jesus both is that if there is some kind of a sin, it has got to be completely removed. If there's an idol still in our lives, it has to be fully dealt with and entirely vacated from our lives like the, I'd love to talk about a certain banner at a school nearby, but I won't. He removed priests. That's difficult for us to imagine what removing a priest is like. You could say removing a minister, but you still have access to God. They only had access to God through a priest. But we can ask ourselves the question, is anything or anyone in our lives something that we access maybe as though it were something that had the power of a God? It brings you peace. It helps you understand your path forward through difficulty. We'll get to some personal applications in a minute. Josiah expected 
everyone who was a part of the kingdom, everyone in Judah, to follow him directly in these reforms. He expected everyone, no one in town, in, I'm sorry, the whole country, in any town, should be wondering, I wonder where the Asherah poles went. I mean, where are all the shrines to the prophets of Baal? Where, where did all that stuff go? They shouldn't be wondering because the king said that we're entirely eliminating all of it, and I've made a spectacle of this all across the land, a long and continual process that he was committed to. Josiah expected them to replace what was ungodly in their hearts with what was godly. He did not expect them to do this in some new way. However, let's read, I'm going to read this one. It's 2 Kings 23, 21 to 23. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover had wait, had any such Passover been observed. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. So Josiah doesn't say, let's imagine a whole new way for us to connect to and remember the works of the Lord. He says, Let's do the thing that was commanded literally a thousand years ago. It's called the Passover, and we forgot all about it because we didn't have a book of the word of the Lord, and now we do, so we're going to do that thing. And revival is going to be similar in our hearts and lives. There's not going to be this, this brand new thing to God, but it could be brand new to us. <clears throat> Charles Finney says, a revival breaks the power of the world and of sin over Christians. A simple definition. A revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God, but it must begin with repentance. Finally, uh, this is our fifth mark of a revival. They're characterized by conversions, or you could also say by fruit. So uh, some audience participation really quick here. Get, get your thinking caps on, turn that memory on, and think back to when Israel is about to take the promised land. Get your mindset for that because history doesn't remember the critics. History doesn't remember the critics. So when those 12 spies, uh, 10 were bad and 2 were good, anybody? I got some people who know that song. I'm not going to make you sing it, but 10 were bad and 2 were good. Name one of the 10 that was bad. Anybody? Name a bad spy. You can't do it because history doesn't remember the critics. Now name one of the good ones. Yeah, I heard Joshua. That's what I heard. But you, it was Joshua, right? Maybe Caleb. I heard you guys saying it because we remember, history remembers the people who were after God's heart, but not the critics. Now, I have the name of two other critics, but I'm not going to tell you because you don't know them. If you do, stand up. You can tell us who was the chief critic of revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards or the preacher from the Great Awakening, George Whitfield. Who were the two chief critics of those two men? No one remembers the critics. History doesn't remember the critics. It remembers the fruit. Jesus, Jesus, because his apostles, his friends, his disciples are trying to figure out, how do we figure out who's for us and who's against us? And, and Jesus says, in Matthew 7, there's nothing to read here for you guys. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous, what, Georgetown? 
wolves. And his apostles are thinking, uh, that's the question we asked you, so we need you to help us with that. And so Jesus gives them some hints that are, that are really easy for people like you and me to follow. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? And the answer is no. Also, the, the answer is no, because uh, pretty much none of us grow grapes now. But the answer to that, it was a super obvious no. It would be like asking you, do you get gas um, okay, do you get gas at Pizza Hut? And they would all know the answer was no to that. And I'm sure there's a Pizza Hut at the gas station. I don't want to hear about it, so save it. But the, the good tree can't bear bad fruit, and the bad tree can't bear good fruit. And Jesus said you're going to recognize them by, your, by their fruit. So historians have been breaking down what happened from the 1970 revival in Asbury, and many histories have been written on it. Suffice to say, that if 2,000 teams went out to share the work of the Lord in the campus that, just that time period, over 130 college campuses and universities, that there was some fruit right there. But then imagine the fruit of the students who returned to that campus. And we could go look at the yearbooks, and I can tell you the historians have done that, but there are so many works recording the fruits of so many people who went to four years of undergrad and three years of seminary and then to the mission field or the ministry or they're leading a nonprofit somewhere expressing the great love of God that crushes and just destroys all of the sins separating it as far as the east is from the west for us or if you're out there the east from the west but they never connect he separates our sin and they have gone into all the earth to proclaim that so the fruit was obvious my point is anybody can be a skeptic of a revival. And when if you, just if you go to begin following one of these hashtags, you're going to see a hundred million dozen skeptics. And they're all going to say oh, something like, but is there barking? And the truth is there might be barking. But does barking mean that God is not moving? I'm here to tell you from the stage with the microphone and the trust of the elders that barking is not a sign of the Holy Spirit. Was I unclear? not a sign of the Holy Spirit. It is not, you will not find it in your Bible. Bring me your Bible and I will burn it for you if you have one of those. That is not a sign of the Holy Spirit. But emotionalism can happen. It can even overwhelm us. Yesterday I was at the city museum with my kids and I was stuck in this parking lot that had fences like 5,000 feet high and like these stinking arms that wouldn't go up and everybody's jamming their credit card in there. And if like, if I was only in the Jeep, God help me, I would be on the news. But nobody, it was gridlocked and the whole parking lot was full of people in their cars laying on the horns because the arm would not go up. You could put that credit card in a thousand times and we were all collectively becoming overwhelmed with emotion. You've probably been overwhelmed with emotion when you've entered the interstate and someone won't merge or you're coming up on a construction zone and there have been signs and there have been cones and the moron won't merge. And you yourself have probably been overcome with emotion. Does emotion mean that the experience we're having is not real? No, because he's still a moron and he should have merged. It's just that now I'm cussing and need to repent. Uh, uh, well, maybe you would be. Okay, maybe I would be. And we will need to repent. If we sin in our anger, well, then the emotion is a problem. But an emotion is not a sin. How many of you have, have cried when you saw something beautiful happen? How many of you have cheered for your team that was maybe playing in the Super Bowl? You just got all caught up in it. Emotions aren't inherently evil. Jonathan Edwards was a notable defender of emotions in revivals. 
His defense was simple. It was to say that if there is someone in a revival who is emotional or overly emotional, it doesn't mean that there was not a revival. And this was a man who was not only a theologian, but a philosopher and a writer who observed dozens of revivals and decided to write about it. I think he might know what he's talking about. No barking. Okay, so how do we respond then to a revival? This is our last three blanks, and they go faster than the first five because we're not reading about people and kings whose names are very difficult to pronounce sometimes. Right, Noah? Right, were they hard? You guys did a good job. Thank you. It sounds like I might be able to finish it, though. So how do we then respond? So many people are struggling with this question because we have cars, and we have gas, even though it's $4 gas. Should I drive to Asbury? Well, let me be clear. It is not a crime to drive to Asbury, and God won't look down on you if you drive to Asbury. And maybe God even smiles more highly on those that drive to Asbury. You'll not find that in the Bible. But the desire to be close to God is, is something that we should all be, be nurturing in our hearts. But we don't have to be in Wilmore, Kentucky to experience that. Again, it's not a crime for you to drive there. Please check their website if you're planning to. But my question, the bottom line is like at the root of that question, should I drive to Asbury? I think is another question. And I think that question is, what is it that I'm hoping that God is going to do like to me? Or what is it that I'm hoping that God is going to do for me where I just get to like sit there and be like, oh yeah, Holy Spirit, do that stuff. I'll just lay here. Like, what is it that we're, we're maybe just really hoping that he is going to miraculously do to us that just skips the difficult work of sanctification, which is like that continuous repentance that takes not just a day and not just an hour and not just a minute, but it takes a habit through the course of our life. So how do we respond? We test every spirit in 1 John 4, 1 through 6. There are no crazy names here. If one of you is ready to read, I invite your help. Are you ready to go? Okay, that's a lot of verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he is in you. He, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, you can read it yourselves. The Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. I'm making a logical argument here, follow along. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. The Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. Uh, John and Jesus both say that we're not going to add anything to the scripture. We're not going to take anything away. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says that regarding the law, and John says that regarding the book of the Revelation to John. 
So what we want to deduce from all of that is that if we find a person who's saying that the way to salvation, the way to hope in the Lord, the way to cleanse ourselves from sin, the way to real revival is Jesus plus this experience that you need to have. Or is Jesus plus make sure you bark. Did, we're taking away today that barking is not a thing we need to do. So, so if, if you hear that and you want to test the spirit and think, huh, it seems like the Bible just says that it's Jesus, and this person has added something to it, then we've tested the Spirit. We've seen, we don't need to see the fruit because they said it with their mouth, and they're crazy. And that's not, that, that's, that's not someone that you want to follow then. So the second thing that we do want to do is to prepare our hearts. How do we respond to revival? We wanted to prepare our hearts. If we reflect back, I think you'll see a couple of scriptures there. Second Kings 10, 11. Do you remember what the people did with Josiah? They opened the word. They read the word. They had to hear the word, but we can open it and read it to ourselves with the Lord, with friends, with the church body. And then they went and obeyed the word. So it's not going to work on the first try. We're going to have to continue trying just like it took them days to demolish all those shrines. We're going to have to continuously set our face towards the Lord, and that comes from the reading of Scripture and the decision to pray and to obey. So that's what repentance looks like. We have to confess. Remember, Josiah heard the word of the Lord, and he ripped his robe. I wouldn't have a wardrobe left if I had to do it that way. We don't have to rip our robes, but we do have to, before the Lord, say, I have identified sin. Or maybe some of us will be to a place where we can say, Lord, help me identify sin because I don't see it. Search my heart, O God. Maybe your prayer. We have to repent. We have to confess. We have to prepare our hearts. But I wonder how many times you have to drive to somewhere like Asbury and this will be a question for you. How many times do you have to drive to Asbury before God will do the thing you're wanting him to do? And the question's rhetorical because I believe the work is a work that we have to decide that we're going to do. Uh, almost all of my kids discovered how water fountains work in this hallway over here at Georgetown Christian, right next to the bathrooms. And if you're here at VBS time, you can see some preschoolers getting their first experience with a water fountain. And they're, they're coming up to it, and it's like this high on their face, and they're hammering the little button on the front, and it's shooting water out. And before long, if you give them like 30 seconds, they've developed a pool in it and around the water fountain, and they are just basking in the glory of water at the touch of a button. And it is so much fun that I made videos of every one of my kids discovering water fountains here. They get it all over their face, and it goes down their shirt. And at VBS, that's really important because you're going to be at rec, and you need to be cooled off. But what about the rest of the kids in class? They're all standing back there and they're all getting parched and they all can't breathe anymore because they're hot and they need a drink of water. Well, I wonder how many times we might want to put ourselves in a place where the Lord's presence is here and we experience peace. And you're just trying to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back and keep hammering the button on the water fountain, get water all over our face like a little toddler and never actually do the work of like repentance in our own life or obedience that looks different than our life did before. Or even the work of saying, you know, John, I would love to share with you what God has done in my life. I used to have this issue here and I'd love to show you that God has brought me to a place where I'm still not perfect, but now I'm like this. How many of us totally ignore that fact and just want to drive to Wilmore. God's not going to do it for us. He's not going to change our heart because we drove to Wilmore. It's a habit and a practice that we have to embrace the same as those Judites following King Josiah. 
and those first Christians. So lastly, we have to prepare our church. Our last blank, we have to prepare our church. I'm going to invite you guys into Acts chapter 2 with me because I want to summarize some. And lest you think that we're not good Bereans, I want you guys to be following along there as I'm summarizing. But uh, as I'm leaving uh, 2 Kings, I want to remark that Josiah brought about multiple reforms in Judah, but all of his reforms involved removing idols and remembering the work of God by an established practice of God, which was found in Scripture, namely the Passover. So where do we need to seek repentance is a question we all have to ask as a community as well as individuals. And then where do we as a community need to destroy idols, to burn them down, to remove the ash, and to remove it from our city even, to pulverize idols, and to take the ash entirely out from our presence? And it's so difficult to imagine what on earth is an idol. But I'll ask you a simple question. When you get stressed, when you encounter a problem you can't solve, when you have to deal with that person that's still at work, and how on earth do they have a job? Does anyone know we're paying this person to do what they're not doing? When you encounter those situations, what is it to which you run? What is the thing or the place or the process that you run to and you place your hope in it and you put your trust in it and you think, if I just send this little email, if I just, whatever, maybe uh, watch 15 episodes of something on Netflix and kind of like check out from life. If I just do this thing, I can numb the pain or ignore the pain or maybe somehow like skirt the pain for a while, but the pain is not resolved. That's an idol. Because an idol has powerless to change our lives. So it may be difficult for us to imagine what an idol is. But as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, think about that as you hear the word idol again. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, I choose this one because sometimes for me, the biggest idol is that my car isn't as shiny as the other car. I just want the car to be shinier. Like I can like wash my car and it will be shiny again. But sometimes we have a covetous problem. And when it's in America and the church has been removed from the fabric of the culture, the, I mean, the string is loose, the church is gone, and we are down here in the depths of depravity seeking happiness in places we'll never find it. It's critical then that we repent of the covetousness. So we're looking back at Acts 2, Luke's account of the first church. We can observe just a couple of marks before we close that we would be wise as a church to employ as we answer the question, how do we respond to a revival? So Peter preaches, and I should probably join you in Acts 2. Peter preaches in Acts 2 a sermon that is following a time when these apostles were all waiting in an upper room and the Holy Spirit comes on them and tongues of, say it with me, Georgetown, fire. He comes on tongues of fire. Say fire, fire, because I need you to wake up because we're almost done and you don't want to miss the last part because this is the part that applies specifically and exclusively to our community of believers. So Peter preaches and these people gather because they are rushing wind and they see tongues of fire. So Peter preaches from the, guess what? The scriptures, like this part of your Bible, he preaches from that a scripture, a text that they all now know. And he preaches that Jesus is the Lord. He's the, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the saving one, the one they have expected. He preaches this sermon and the crowd, you can see in verse 37, the crowd feels conviction. Uh, the 
<clears throat> KJV, or yeah, the King James might say, they were cut to the heart. Would one of you guys read verse 42, Acts 2, 42 and 43? <laughs> read it. Acts 2, 42, 42 and 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So if we're just trying to pick up a couple of marks from that, Acts 2, 42 and 43. Can we have 42 again real quick, Penny? <clears throat> Thank you. In 42, they've devoted themselves, and we've examined this verb before, a year, last year, maybe the year before, and it's a verb that means ongoing action, just like our repentance is ongoing, to the apostles' teaching, which is the new understanding of this whole section of the Bible back here, but this apostles' teaching is teaching they also received from Jesus. So letters of the New Testament, the gospel good news that wasn't written yet, but was still real, and so at the time here, the first church in the first century was called the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and I want to invite you guys to explore what it would mean to have fellowship with a place like this. We have needs. Every one of us has needs, and some of them are insurmountable, and when they're insurmountable, we bring them to the church, and we have mechanisms and systems in place in some places, and other places maybe not so much, but some of them I want to say to you anonymously, so I'm being careful. They are in place. And as a result of the fact that they are in place, so many of you have been so very generous very recently within the last month or two, you got to experience what it means to meet the needs. To, if we go on to verse 43, 4, 5, 6, 7, they were selling their possessions and giving to one another as they had needs. Certain members of our church are known for being generous, and they're asked anonymously, and no one knows what even happened. But they got to experience this right here kind of fellowship in Greek is called koinonia. It's a special kind of fellowship that's more than getting together and having brats and, and burgers. But if you're doing that, I, I like those. But it's more than having a potluck is what I'm trying to say. And this first church, they were also the, see the article of the means it's not just having a snack. That, that means that they were remembering the covenant, the new covenant of grace. They were taking communion, eating the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. So those are some marks that meet we really need to make sure that we're observing. And if you're not, there are a variety of means by which you may put yourself into one of those places. Georgetownchristian.org is one place you can respond. Another is to walk right down here. I'd be glad to talk to you. We have people from Next Steps that will talk to you. But my encouragement for you is this, that as you consider what is a revival, and then you see revival begin to increase and grow rapidly across our nation, God, we were praying for that this morning, be prepared for revival in your own heart. Be prepared to repent and confess and to obey and to share that good news Let's bow our heads. Father, we know revival begins with prayer and repentance, and it ends with fruits of obedience. Lord, as, as individuals, we all have repenting to do here. We, we have uh, issues trusting whether it be our job or an insurance policy or a retirement plan, or maybe we're putting our faith in the success of somebody like our kids or our parents or our spouse or whatever, but you see 
uh, those places in our hearts that need to be redeemed and they need to be renewed and they need to be given to you as a thing that we need to have help with. And we're coming to you asking that you would help us with those because, Father, we want to be repentant. We want to confess before you the sin that separates us from you. And you want to say, fill us with your spirit. Father, send your Holy Spirit in our hearts as we continuously ask for you to search our hearts, to help us to be faithful to you, to help us to have the courage to obey where before we haven't. We've turned to an idol. Father, would you fill us with your spirit for every one of us that has been baptized? And we know by the fact of Scripture that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're asking you to continue to fill even more now as we can read through the rest of the story of your Spirit's work birthing the church in the book of Acts. We're asking, just as they did, that you would continue filling us with that Spirit. That you would begin moving in our hearts and lives in a way that people say, that has to be Jesus. Something's going on, but that has to be Jesus, just like what we're seeing at Wilmore. Father, if you want us to be at Wilmore, make the way, because we believe you can. Father, whatever the darkness is that we're walking through, wherever we're finding ourselves currently weak, we know that you're made strong. We lean on you and we follow you as our shepherd this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.